Micro-investing application Robinhood has been thrust into the news around the GameStop investing debacle. Professor John Orchid joins me to discuss. This is The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So John, Robinhood sells itself as democratizing investing uh, with allowing anyone with a smartphone to invest in stocks and partial stocks. This led it to it being pivotal around the whole game stocks fiasco, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, and I'll be sure to link the episode in the episode description. Uh, how much impact does a service like this have on the industry as a whole? Ooh, industry as a whole, honestly, we're going to have to see uh – uh, we'll see whether it has a long-term impact on the industry. Um, I would expect that it would simply because um, it does make investing easier. It eliminates a few hurdles for people to uh, get involved with the stock market. Um, and as a result, uh, more people are are investing. So like, honestly, I, I, and I expect that's a trend that will continue for some period of time unless people have such a bad experience from losing money that um, they decide to exit the market. Something that made Robinhood infamous with the online community well beyond Reddit was their shutting down of trading of GME, which is GameStop, and forced selling of some shares, which could have been like a caching of it takes time for the trades actually go through. Uh, this led to Robinhood being disavowed by everyone from Elon Musk to Barstool's Dave Portnoy to YouTuber Philip DeFranco. I mean, what's the legality of a, plat- a, tra- a trading platform doing something like that? So actually just um, before we say they've been disavowed by everyone, um, they were able to raise a couple of billion dollars um, from investors very quickly, both in terms of their ability to um, – uh, to deal with that original problem, they raised a billion dollars, which allowed them to reopen the trading. And I'll explain in a second, you know, why they had to restrict trading. Um, and then I believe they were able to do another private round um, immediately after that. Um, so at least from investors in Robinhood's perspective, um, I don't think that they're viewing this as okay. Robinhood is now in big trouble, and they're going to have. Uh, difficulties. Um, I don't think that's been the case. And I think as well, their subscriptions have dramatically increased as well. Um, as there is, you know, even with uh, the problems that they had, their subscriptions have increased. Um, and they're still on schedule to do an initial public offering at some point in uh, 2021. Their demise uh, is uh, that that is, I do not believe that's the case at all. In fact, I think they're probably flourishing more now than ever. What's the legality of them shutting down trading on specific stocks like that, though? Uh, it's legal. Um, and I think and I'm going to say I, I think it is. Uh, I, and I'm going to even say without like the typical lawyer qualifications, I, I think it was a legal act for them to do. I know there's been some um, class actions filed against them as a result of that. Um, I'm not optimistic for the success of those uh, class actions. Um, so. The reason that they did it is because of very complex structure that involves the fact that Robinhood is not the party that actually executes the trades. They're the broker, right? They're the ones that facilitates the trade. You could think of them as the gateway into the trade, but the actual 
physical transfer where seller says, here, I am handing you, well, he's not handing, it's done electronically, but just you understand, I'm handing you my stock certificates and buyer is saying, here, I'm handing you my cash. Robinhood's not the one that does that transaction. It's a clearinghouse that does that transaction. And that clearinghouse has certain deposit requirements, which I'm happy to explain if you think that uh, the listeners want to know why that's all going on. But they've got deposit requirements. And the more volatile and risky the transactions that the clearinghouse is is exchanging or is conducting, the greater the deposit that's required from the broker in order to do those transactions. As everything got crazy, the 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 it, you know uh, uh, GameStop suddenly became a very volatile stock, and as a result, the deposit requirements went up, and uh, Robinhood just didn't ha- did not have enough cash on hand um, in order to uh, fulfill those deposits. There's like this confusing ethical versus uh, realistic, like, do we have the money to complete these transactions arguments that are, are going on at both sides of it? This is an extremely, it turned into a real volatile situation where even uh, Congress has been getting involved with it. Yeah. And I, and I, when you talk about Congress's role and uh, the fact that they're involved, and I do think that some things will come out of it. I just, you know, sometimes what happens when you look at a complicated story like this, people look at the wrong part of the story first. There are store parts of the story that are interesting and that have some more questionable practices. The Clearinghouse One is not one of them. Um, and what's happening there, just, uh, you know, very quickly, The clearinghouse is in the middle of those trades. So it's the one that actually facilitates the transaction because the transactions don't take place immediately. So when you buy stock, you don't get the stock certificates immediately. You get stock certificates in two days. When you sell stock, you don't get the money immediately. You get the money in two days. And then as well, when you buy stock, you don't have to come up with the money immediately. I don't deliver that money for two days. There's a lot that can happen in two days. So there's risk that's associated with those transactions. At the same time, there are somewhere close to 10 billion securities transactions that take place every single day. And oftentimes those transactions are part of a series of transactions. So I sell my Apple stock and then I take the proceeds from my Apple stock and I buy Cisco stock and I sell another stock and I buy another stock. And I've got all these transactions that are chained together. If you have a big player that starts to default or a group of players that starts to default, you can have a chain reaction. And now all of a sudden you've got defaults that are going through the entire system and you get systemic risk. This is what happened in 2008 when Lehman defaulted on its side of a bunch of transactions, and all of a sudden we had systemic risk risk in the markets. That's bad. One of the ways that we protect against that is clearing houses basically serve as guarantors of each side of the transaction. So when buyer and seller are doing their deal, if one of them defaults, the clearinghouse will step in and take its role. 
as it gets more volatile, it gets more expensive to step in and take that role. And as a result, the clearinghouse requires the brokers that are asking it to do the transaction to put in place a higher deposit. So if the clearinghouse is going to have to do the guarantee, they don't really want to do the guarantee. They look to the broker with the deposit and they use that money in order to facilitate the transaction where someone has broke their side of the deal. So it seems like on all sides, with everything that's gotten kind of put into the public sphere, is they've is this drastic simplification of what's going on. Uh, of for course, better like, or this worse. is a really, really sophisticated, complicated story, and it's even the sort of story if you bring in your average securities attorney or your average broker, they're gonna be like, I don't, I don't really know how clearinghouse processes work, or I don't know, you know. So it's complicated. And another just just sort of going back to real easy law stuff as to why it's permissible. If you go and look at your subscription agreement on Robinhood, Robinhood, which they post on their website, their agreement provides them in two provisions very clearly the ability to restrict trading at any time. It's part of the contract. Now, we could argue about whether that should be part of the contract or not, whether they should have that right. Um, But it's actually it's in there. Uh, Every one of the people who has agreed to that, um, that was part of the right. What do you predict will happen going forward with these independent stock sharing companies with regards to legislation and regulation? They seem to be low hanging fruits. We have a Democratic controlled federal government at this point for at least the next couple of years. So I think there are a couple of things that uh, will probably come or could come out of this. Um, One of them, one issue that is just potentially troubling, and this is an issue that's not uh, limited to securities, um, securities brokers, um, is the uh, mandatory arbitration. So to the extent that you do have a dispute as a customer, your ability to get to the courts in order to um, have your dispute heard is oftentimes limited by mandatory arbitration provisions. I think that's something that will be looked at. The more important practice that I think will be looked at is going to be um, the payment for deal flow practice that uh, Robinhood uses and then several other um, of these sort of uh, lower cost retail brokers use where they don't charge you a commission for trading. So they are, you know, they're giving away what would appear to most customers to be a free service, which is not, in fact, a free service. This sounds just so much like every social media platform terms of service. Uh, you know, yeah. And you and oftentimes, you know, you get what you pay for. So like this is one where if you're using a cut rate service in order to um, just 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 is the most I'm going to do an oversimplification here. But um, if you are undertaking a multi-billion dollar strategy, you may not want to use the most cut rate service in order to undertake that multi-billion dollar um, strategy. I just think that's just something that is, uh, you know, that's probably not the, the best way to do it. There's a reason why there's still, even with these small stock trading applications and platforms out there, there's still a, a huge need for the larger financial institutions with having impact on the stock market. Oh, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, our whole security system and the way we regulate it has primarily been based on the idea of allowing 
retail investors who probably are not capable most, although I'm sure that many of the Reddit army would, would push back on me on this, are not capable of valuing stock and coming up with a thoughtful, independent analysis as to what is a proper price to buy stock at. Um, our system allows for retail investors to free ride on the efforts of the large institutional um, investors and make the whole system safer. And, and, you know, that's where we start getting in things like efficient market theory. And, and that's really what our system is based on. So like when I invest, I don't actually have to thoughtfully look at in most cases whether or not this is a good buy or not. The market has done it for me and I free ride on those efforts. And when I say the market, it's largely big institutional investors. Now, at the same time, you can get groups of individuals that decide they want to break out of that system, which is what's happened with this Reddit army. Um, and they're operating sort of outside of that normal system um, where they're you know, both trying to take down hedge funds and take advantage as well of a speculative bubble. Um, our regulatory system is really not built to protect them. And since they've already kind of gone through this, uh, what was it, you know, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, you know, we saw the big run up all the way up to, if I remember correctly, it was $483. And then everything sort of settled back down and it settled down into trading into like the $40 to $50 a share range. And then yesterday it took off. And then this morning it took off again. And now it's back up to at least the, I think the opening bid was somewhere around $160 a share. So it shot up from about $40 a share earlier in the week to about $160 now. Um, honestly, I don't know how you, you protect people who don't want to be protected. So thanks for listening to the Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.